Hello and welcome to the BitBlock Boom Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, producer of the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. And just for reference, I also produce the 4-Minute Bitcoin Podcast, available everywhere podcasts are available. Now, every August, I host the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference in Dallas, Texas, with the help of many of my friends. If you are interested in Bitcoin, you really need to visit bitblockboom.com and take a look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on around BitBlockBoom. You see, BitBlockBoom is a true Bitcoin conference, and I really mean a true Bitcoin conference. On this episode, I'm featuring a session from the 2020 BitBlockBoom conference by Stephen Cole. Let's take a listen. BitBlockBoom! Thank you very much, Gary. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen Cole. I would just like to actually start off by saying how refreshing it is to kind of be in the same room with a lot of Bitcoiners again. Um, this hasn't happened in a while. I think it's important. Uh, so thank you, Gary, and the whole team for putting this event on. Uh, the topic today that I'm going to speak about is Bitcoin as a defense against tyranny. This talk is influenced heavily by a couple of my favorite books. Uh, one, many of you may know, one of my favorites, The Sovereign Individual, written in 1997. It talks about the impact of technology on how society is organized, on who makes the rules. Uh, and then the other book, and really set of works, he has many, um, is from an author named James Scott. He's an anthropologist from Yale, and he's written extensively about nation states and peoples um, and even about agriculture and kind of the relationship among all of those. So assume that any profound insights today come from uh, all those authors and I am just kind of attempting to draw what I think are interesting parallels that we might be able to, to learn or take away from, uh, from history. The very brief Bitcoin context, since most of us are Bitcoiners, uh, we know about the scarcity, we know about the uncensorability. So only 21 million ever, no matter what, and anyone can pay anyone. Those two attributes get a lot of attention, and rightfully so, because they are absolutely world-changing. Um, but in this talk, I want to focus a little bit on Bitcoin's resistance to seizure, its resistance to confiscation. Um, and the relationship is especially important between seizure resistance and scarcity when you're talking about a money or when you're talking about storing human value. Because it doesn't matter quite as much if no one can take away what you have if they can just cheaply or freely print as much as they want. Uh, that is the essence, as many of you know, of central banking. It's kind of their secret sauce. The number of dollars in your bank account stays the same, but over time, the purchasing power... Sorry, just pretend I'm not here. Not even here, don't worry. Does that sound better? Can everybody hear me okay? All right, cool. But over time, uh, so the central bankers inflate the money supply. And although the number of dollars in your account stays the same, your purchasing power is being quietly eaten away by central bankers. There is this 
dominant narrative in history and in mainstream education about the progress of any particular group of people over time. And that's usually along the lines of we start off as tribal and nomadic and pastoral. Eventually, we learn to farm. We learn to read and write. We probably settle in increasingly dense-packed communities. And once we are in those communities, then and once we are in those communities, uh, then we will build walls for protection. The lucky people on the inside, the citizens, and we should pity the poor barbarians on the outside who are missing out on all of the fun. But what I think is a very interesting question is like, is that always true? And even if it's mostly true, are there significant exceptions? Are there peoples who may have in directions that the mainstream narrative would think backwards? James Scott argues that some people might have been barbarians by design. That is, they intentionally fleed the state in order to regain some amount of freedom or to perhaps prevent their wealth from being extracted from them. Uh, numerous accounts of cities, uh, groups of people voluntarily exiting, taking up life, often in the hills. And some evidence may suggest that walls were important for keeping out raiders, but also important for keeping in taxpayers. When looking at the relationship between people and states, a particularly fascinating point to examine is the edge, uh, the periphery. So the closer you are to the center of a city of state power, the easier you are to control. If you're near the edge, you can leave more easily. Um, you can flee, you can escape. And you can take your productive capacity with you, which is essentially the lifeblood of the state. To quote James Scott, the main long-run threat of, of the ungoverned periphery was that it represented a constant temptation, a constant alternative to life within the state. And that was a big check on government power because humans are the most valuable asset that they can control. So valuable, in fact, that slavery was ubiquitous in early states, and Robert covered this at length and excellently earlier. Um, in Southeast Asian states, all of the pre-colonial states were slave states, without exception. And to quote Scott again, wars in pre-colonial Southeast Asia were less about territory than about the seizure of as many captives as possible, who were then resettled at the core of the winner's territory, easier to control. The work of James Scott and other anthropologists uh, centers largely around this region you can see shaded in red. They refer to it as Zomia. It is not formally a political state or nation today. It spans what is China, parts of Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, it's particularly diverse in its terrain and geography. So. The, the mountainous regions tended to be at the edges of the states. The states occupied the flatlands. The states were the valleys, and the mountains tended to be the realm of the ungoverned tribes. And why might that be? Well, to a state, the hills represent friction. Uh, it's hard to march up a hill. It's harder if you're carrying stuff like weapons. And if you're going as a group and you need to defend yourselves, it's especially hard if the paths are narrow, if there's dense forest on both sides, difficult to cut or burn through, um, making you vulnerable to attack from people who may not want you to be there, who might not want to be pursued. So 
even more basically than that cost is knowing where to go in the first place. Um, counting people and knowing who is where and who stores their value where was not easy for early states. It's something we take for granted nowadays um, with credit cards and the global reach of the financial system. So you could say that people would flee to the hills and that that would make it more costly to pursue them in order to extract their wealth, in order to tax them with the threat of violence. Uh, this reduced the return on investment for violence of the nation state. Uh, Paul Wheatley, historian, says political control sweeps readily across flat terrain, but once it confronts the friction of distance, abrupt changes in altitude, ruggedness of terrain, and the political obstacle of population dispersion and mixed cultivation, then it runs out of political breath. And more succinctly, uh, Baron de Tot, a uh, Hungarian military officer, says the steepest places have always been the asylums of liberty. So this introduces a very interesting incentive. The states have a strong incentive to push inhabitants toward agriculture and particular types of agriculture, sedentary agriculture, in large part because it allows them to pack people more densely, to exercise control over them more easily, and to tie their value to the land in a way that's very visible, uh, even to the naked eye. Grain agriculture, particularly rice, has attributes that make it an ideal fuel for nation states. It grows above ground, can be transported long distances up to 200 kilometers, stores well for up to two years, and all tends to ripen around the same time after it's been planted and ready for harvest. So as a tax collector, or as a thief, or as anyone who wants to steal value from people who have invested their time in rice, you can tell from afar uh, how much they have. You can tell that they are there, it is visible, you can see it from afar. And you can know not only how much yield might be expected, but when it could be expected, and when might be a convenient time for you to swing back by if you wanted to steal some capital for yourself. Uh, simply counting people was a big challenge for states, as we touched on earlier, and that's something James Scott refers to as legibility. So agriculture, and especially grain agriculture like rice, increased the legibility of the population. It made it easier for states to enumerate their population and to account for them and to expect taxes from them. In some sense, you could say that rice is kind of like fiat money um, and the legacy banking system. It's easy for the state to see who's doing what and to see or censor as they may see fit. But at the other end of the agricultural spectrum is another plant called cassava. Uh, cassava is a root crop, it's a tuber, and it's a starchy plant similar to a potato or a yam. Grows underground, stem protruding up with some leaves on top eventually. Uh, cassava does not require as much effort to plant. It can grow and even thrive on lower quality soil, marginal soil, and it doesn't have strong demand for hydration. In fact, it's even classified as being drought tolerant. So in this way, um, with those attributes, it becomes easier for nomadic people in the hills in less ideal cultivation climates to invest and get a return in the land. Cassava also becomes ready in under a year, but importantly, it can stay hidden under the ground for as long as two years. 
this gives people a lot of flexibility in when they may want to come and reclaim some of that value. And it makes it easier to hide that value from the naked eye. You can't as easily see cassava as you can wet rice fields. Cassava, like Bitcoin, has some attributes that make it resistant to seizure. It offered people a way to store their value, the value of their labor and their time, in a means that the state could not easily tax, steal, or even find. No existed. This quote's a long one, but it's one of my favorite. In the new world, too, those whose jobs it was to drive the population into wage labor or onto the plantation, they deplored crops that allowed a free peasantry to maintain autonomy. Hacienda owners in Central America claimed that with cassava, all a peasant needed was a shotgun and fishhook, and he would cease to work regularly for wages. The hills provided a realm to which people could exit and try to reclaim some of their freedom. Uh, root plants, like cassava, provided a tool for them along the way to help them survive and help their wealth avoid confiscation. Maybe the hills are like the internet, and maybe Bitcoin is like cassava. I, I should mention, too, as a footnote to that, that I feel compelled, um, given there are probably meat-loving Bitcoiners here, that when I say Bitcoin is like cassava, it's not based on any uh, nutritional statement. I tend to, I tend to avoid carbohydrates very strategically, um, but I do think the seizure-resistant aspects are quite interesting. So the state, the defining characteristic of a state is a monopoly on violence. They're the ones who get to use physical force. They often sprout from the best of intentions, but they do come with some problems. Uh, they don't have terribly good incentives to provide quality service. There's generally a lack of accountability um, because they can enforce a monopoly with violence. Uh, the also, they also have some nasty side effects such as uh, large-scale wars and famines due to misallocation of resources in centrally planned economies. Throughout most of history, though, if individuals felt taxed unfairly or that the state was not treating them how they deserved, they had this pesky habit of refusing to pay or leaving or even revolting. And history's littered with examples of tax revolts. When during periods of sound money, wars tended to be cheaper and quicker, not last as long. Uh, and that a large part of that was because ultimately someone had to pay for it. A, a leader on one side had to foot the bill. But so when money was limited, you could say political power was limited. This is Alexios III, emperor of Constantinople and the Byzantium Empire around 1200 AD. Uh, he tried to tax his citizens to pay a, uh, a pledge for funds that he, had, that he had made. He was known for his lavish spending and his citizens refused to pay and the collectors refused to enforce and he had to scramble even going so far as to resort to running around trying to, uh, to detach ornaments from the tombs of emperors before him so that he could melt those down or, uh, or sell those off to pay off this debt that was owed. I think that a funny thought exercise is to picture that in today's society, uh, world leaders wanting to do something, wanting to wage a war, wanting to fund some program, and having to scramble to liquidate federal assets to pay for it, um, because, you know, how else would they? But of course, we know that's not how it works anymore. Money has become unlimited. 
And once upon a time, uh, going to war was a big deal. Occasionally, Congress even voted on going to war. But as money has become endless, war has become endless. War is now the default. Uh, and I often wonder, sorry, a little issue with the, uh, the speaker notes here. And I often wonder if that weren't the case, if money was not so easy to conjure up, then would we still be willing to pay that many trillions to go on some of these campaigns if we could really feel that wealth being taken from us rather than having it quietly stolen from our purchasing power in roundabout ways or signed up for future generations to fund via debt? I like to think that, uh, that we might not. The sovereign individual talks about ages of civilization. First, there was the hunter-gatherer age, after that, the agricultural age, the time of farms and dominated largely by the clergy and the church. Uh, most recently, the last couple of centuries, the industrial age. And the authors make the case in the book that now we are in the midst of a transition. We are moving from the industrial age to the next age, the information age, and we have been for about 30 years now. It started with the advent of the microprocessor. It accelerated with the internet. And even though the book, The Sovereign Individual, was written back in 1997, they talk about the importance of digital money and how that will help accelerate the transition to the information age even further, really kick it into high gear. The capacity to mass produce books was incredibly subversive to medieval institutions, just as microtechnology will prove subversive to the modern nation state. I suspect that in the coming years, the transition that I do agree is happening will become more apparent. For most of our lives, it's been whatever the nation state says goes, for better or worse. But the further we get into the information age, perhaps the less true that becomes. The more people who use decentralized tech, encryption, and choose to store their value in seizure-resistant assets like Bitcoin, the more leverage the state loses over you. With a hat tip to, uh, to Parker, gradually then suddenly, it becomes less about what laws are written and more about to what extent those laws can be enforced. How effective will, oops, sorry, Market forces, not political majorities, will compel societies to reconfigure themselves in ways that public opinion will neither comprehend nor welcome. And that's really important to notice. Like, these ages, these big transitions in human history were not voted on. They were not, you know, the result of written documents and constitutions. They were the result of technology. So with written documents and with votes and all of the mechanisms that the system makes available to you, you can change some of the details. Uh, you can dial the knobs, you can change the figurehead, but if you want to change the system, then you have to build and use tech. How effective might gun laws be when firearms can be cheaply 3D printed? How effective are capital controls when payments are uncensorable? And how practical are taxes when value is earned, transferred, and saved outside of the legacy financial system, maybe even pseudonymously? 
less about what they say, more about what they can do. The classical novel Don Quixote, um, it talks about this man who becomes so obsessed with the age of knighthood and chivalry that he dons a suit of armor and gets a horse and a companion and he rides off, um, you know, to kind of in pursuit of this age that he just cannot quite accept may have already passed. The sovereign individual uh, suggests perhaps the Don Quixote of our time of the 21st century won't be a knight errant struggling to revive the glories of feudalism, but a bureaucrat in a brown suit, a tax collector yearning for a citizen to audit. One striking realization for me on my journey into Bitcoin was the, the realization after seeing it of how little I knew about money all my life, despite it being all around me and despite having used it every day. And perhaps some of you can relate to that feeling. Uh, one of my absolute favorite talks is from an author, David Foster Wallace, and he tells a parable in that talk about two fish, two young fish, swimming along, and they pass an older fish, and the older fish uh, turns to them and says, morning boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim along a little longer and eventually one turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? The point of the story is that some of the biggest factors shaping our reality that are all around us are sometimes the hardest ones to see and the hardest ones to talk about. What the hell is water? What the hell is fiat money? But thanks to uh, decentralized technology like the internet and events like BitBlockBoom, people are waking up and they're starting to notice and they're starting to talk about what's been hard to notice and hard to see, but may have been all around us. Fiat money, fiat food, fiat education. You, you go through enough of those realizations and you might begin to wonder, what if we're not as free as we think we are? Said differently, uh, what if we have fiat freedom? What could an alternative look like? With Bitcoin, we can truly own something in, an un, in a seizure-resistant way that's never been possible before. Uh, Bitcoin makes protecting property easier than ever. The return on investment, therefore, might end up lower than ever. What kind of future could that lead to? Might it be more peaceful, cooperative, and prosperous than we've ever known? I like to think so. Much as escape crops like cassava facilitated the escape, um, people's avoiding oppressive regimes and fleeing from what they viewed as tyranny on a regional scale, maybe Bitcoin can function as escape money, offering us a chance to break free of tyranny on a global scale. Uh, Bitcoin means many different things to many different people. But my hope for Bitcoin is that we might be able to build a future in which nations cannot endlessly wage war and cannot endlessly drop bombs because they simply will not have enough Bitcoin to afford it. Thank you. Cool. I've got a few minutes for questions if anybody has any. I don't actually know that much about plants, by the way, um, so.
If uh, I'll just plug a book. If anyone's looking to run for the hills, uh, there's a book called Strategic Relocation called by uh, Joel Suskin or something like that. And he describes, uh, he looks into defensible and protective territory in a literal sense. Sounds great. Appreciate it. And James Scott's other works, by the way, are fantastic in addition to The Art of Not Being Governed. Most of what I talked about um, was from The Art of Not Being Governed, but he's written uh, for quite a while. He has other works, Against the Grain, Seeing Like a State, Analyzing the Relationship Largely in Southeast Asia Around Peoples and States. Another so we've got uh, Bitcoiners of all shapes and sizes here. You know, we've got veterans and people who are probably new. So could you give a little timeline of uh, when you got into Bitcoin and how long it actually took you before you made these final realizations and got to the point where you are now? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my journey into Bitcoin, uh, I, I discovered Bitcoin in 2000, heard about it in 2012, got into it in 2013, and believed that it was world-changing around 2014. I, I think, though, I was really fortunate in how I discovered Bitcoin, because prior to that, around 2008, I had started paying a lot of attention to economics and money. Um, I was a big supporter of Ron Paul in 2008, and I remember him on stages talking about Austrian economics in mainstream you know, presidential debates. And so he really opened my eyes. I started reading Rothbard, uh, Mises, and things from the Austrian school. And it just exposed me to a lot of ideas that I'd never encountered in mainstream education. I would ask my friends who had bachelors in economics about Austrian econ, and they had no idea what I was talking about. So it made me wonder if there was something a little bit hidden there, or at least that hadn't been given some of the attention that it deserved. Uh, so I think from discovering that and the writings of Ayn Rand, I'm a big fan of Ayn Rand, uh, I had kind of decided that the separation of money and state would be a good thing and would lead to a better future before I discovered Bitcoin. Um, and so it was really just about, you know, a tool, a means of achieving that rather than a lot of people kind of discover Bitcoin and the idea of money not controlled by a state is a lot to digest at once. Um, so I feel pretty fortunate in having staggered that a little bit in my journey. Another question? Yeah, so you seem to have like a pretty game theoretical perspective about things. So I'll ask you a game theory question. Um, like this transition that is inevitable that you keep talking about, um, what do you just like zoom out? I don't care what your time frame is. I don't care how far you go back. I don't care how far you go out, but uh, what do you see the transition like? And, uh, and like, I guess, I guess just zoom out and, and give us a perspective of what your real like, what you, what you think's about to go down. Sure, uh, what's the transition gonna be like? I think that there are a couple of ways that it could go, and I know a lot of people in this room think about the same thing. Uh, you know, there might be a peaceful upgrade path and more of a dark, dystopian, um, violent upgrade path. Uh, I, it's very easy, I think, to forget that governments or nations or departments, whatever the, the entity is, at the end of the day, it's a collection of individuals. Um, and so when you think about the game theory, people acting in self-interest, uh, you know, it's, it may be less about this big nebulous thing called the government that wants to stop Bitcoin and will do anything to. It's more the collection of people that the government's composed of discovering Bitcoin and choosing one by one whether to opt in and opt out. 
And I think it happens gradually in that way. If people um, within, you know, uh, political parties um, or within departments of government or the military, if they start to hold Bitcoin and believe in it, then perhaps we can have kind of a gradual, peaceful upgrade path. Uh, I don't know what way it's going to go, but I am a big believer in what Peter Thiel talks about around you can be kind of a definite optimist, definite pessimist. Um, I think by being, if you are, if you take a definite optimist approach to this, that the future will be better, but only if we work to make it better, then I think that's exciting and empowering. Um, you know, it, it is something good when you can wake up and believe you're contributing to Bitcoin or to any cause that leads to a better future. And uh, as long as we build it. Thank you. Uh, hey, man. Um, really great talk. Um, I'm grateful for your thoughts. Uh, you mentioned uh, when you, your analogy of what is water um, and how we may have been surrounded by concepts of which we do not question anymore because we were born into it and uh, universally accepted it. Um, in your opinion, what is you know the best way to explain to people who are so rooted in you know this this theory or these you know concepts um, and and actually red pill them or you know expose them to the matrix and everything that we're in right now? You know. Yeah, what's the best way to unplug people from the matrix? Um, I, I also run meetups in Southern California and have uh, been grateful to have a lot of interaction with people who are getting into the space for the first time. Something interesting that I've observed is not only while the power of number go up, marketing is strong. I will say that first and foremost. So when the price rises and the media covers it and everyone sees it, then that is you know hard to beat. I think that is a force to be reckoned with. But at the individual level, one strategy that I love is you know I used to go around in 2015, 2016, and I would kind of do the Andreas thing of like give a little talk or meet people and then offer to give them a dollar worth of Bitcoin and get them some skin in the game. But I never found that to really have too much success. And so I, I got to wondering about why, and I wondered if psychologically, maybe that triggers some of the same instincts as when you're walking on the sidewalk and someone tries to hand you like a pamphlet. And reflexively, you're just like, I don't want this. You know, it can't be worth my time. It's not good. Um, so instead, I flipped it upside down. And if I'm like in an Uber talking to a driver about Bitcoin, um, you know, he'll say, well, like, so for example, could you pay me in it for this ride? And I'll say, well, I could, but I mean, I don't, part with Bitcoin easily. Those things are scarce and valuable and uh, you know, nobody can just print more of them. So I am trying to hoard and accumulate as much Bitcoin as I can. And I think when you put it in those terms, often you can like see this click in someone's, you know, and like in their eyes and their mind and they go, wow, I don't have this stuff. And this other person is like thinking a lot about how to accumulate this stuff. So, you know, is there, a, is there something I should be doing differently there? And that's been a pretty successful tactic for me lately. Thanks. All right, and I think that's all the time we got for questions. Very much appreciate the time and the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the BitBlock Boom podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Make sure and take a look at this year's lineup of speakers at bitblockboom.com. And if you use the code COUSINS, that's C-O-U-S-I-N-S. When purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price of a general admission ticket. I hope to meet you at next year's BitBlock Boom Conference in Dallas, Texas. And thanks for listening. BitBlock Boom!